Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Hey, welcome everyone to another Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli with RestaurantOwner.com. I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine, the magazine of RestaurantOwner.com. And Barry, this is going to be a fun one. I hope you uh, listeners are going to, you guys are really going to enjoy a different story here. We've got a gentleman who's going to share a story of purchasing a concept, honoring tradition for a well-established concept, while also growing, modernizing, and even franchising. So uh, welcome, Randy Hines of the Kalachi Shop to Corner Booth. Randy, welcome. Hey, thank you guys both for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, Randy, we like to get these things started out with just kind of some background on our guests, you know, what their experience, if any, in the restaurant business was prior to your present concept, what made you choose your concept, what drew you to this business? Yeah, well, I'll say I grew up an hour southwest of Houston in Wharton County, Mm -hmm. which is a very heavy Czech population which was to my benefit because the food was always awesome and very homely and welcoming. And so for me, you know, growing up, Kalashis were very much part and parcel of all that. So from literally from births to funerals, to weddings, to everything in between the, the Czech cuisine and Czech food, not just Czech, but Polish and German as well was, was really front and center. And so I would say like, like most people, the, the food that you eat as a child really imprints you and, it certainly did for me. And I, I frankly thought that I thought as a kid, this was the food that the entire world was eating right now. You don't realize, you know, there's the, such the unique regional specialties that you enjoy. And so I, I moved away and got a job in Houston back in the early 2000s. And, you know, Houston's not not that far away, but as multicultural as Houston is, it just didn't have some of those small Texas town type joints that you get a certain kind of kolache at or or Kobasniki to use kind of a specific term with the, the sausage inside. And so for me, you know, the, the love began before I could probably even speak, but it didn't kind of hit until I left small town Texas and realized that, well, I I really have a great affinity for this stuff that I'm having a harder time find versus at every local little meat market or bakery or gas station, even frankly, even, even in the lunchroom when I was going to school in first, second, third grade, that the, many of the people we're making these things fresh from scratch. And that was your dessert. It wasn't a cookie. It was a cherry collage, you know, as, as they called it, you know, collage is singular and collage is plural. These days we just saw say collage for singular, singular and collage for plural. But yeah, so that, that kind of takes us into, into the 2000s in Houston. And so really the thought of owning and running a business, a, a restaurant never, ever crossed my mind. I was a CPA working as a professional auditor. I was traveling a lot wasn't married at the time. I, and frankly, I, I liked the work. I liked the experiences. I liked traveling, spent a lot of time in New Orleans. That was amazing. I, I traveled abroad. Um, and I would say I probably have always been a foodie. Part of the benefits of this job was you get to, to try out other people's special, you know, regional cuisine. And that was always exciting for me, but you know, years and years go by and you start to really ponder things philosophically and say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know if this is for me. Is this, 
what I want to do for 30, 40 years? Certainly the answer is yes for some people, but I, I was getting the clear indication that for me, the answer was no. Even at that point, the idea of running a restaurant wasn't in my mind. I had moved away from Texas into Washington, D.C. And like many Texas expats, I missed all the things that we just love here in Texas. So from margaritas to boudin to jerky to kolaches, you name it, all the stuff that for here it's, you can get uh, anywhere, you just couldn't get. So, but, but chief among those were kolaches. And so this is back around 2005, 06. And into 07, I was like, I'm going to learn to make kolaches, authentic kolaches, the way I you know, grew up eating them, so I can make them for myself and my friends outside of the state. That was the, that was the original idea. Oh. So, so yeah, that was kind of the inception, as you, as you might call it. So I, I then went to the bakery that I liked the best in Houston, which was Kolache Shop at Richmond and Westland. They'd been there since 1970, had no idea who the owner was. I just knew... Look, I was already kind of working in Houston some when I was back and forth from D.C. I thought, I'm going to call them up and just ask, right? You know, knowing that they might say, look, we're not going to teach you to make our, our proprietary kolache. No, you know. But instead, I, I called up and got to know the owner, who is Mr. Irwin's, Irwin Aarons. And he'd been the sole proprietor since 1970. He was in his mid-70s at this point. And... Again, not I didn't go into it knowing this, but it turns out we really hit it off. It was kind of a grandfather-grandson relationship. I think he liked the fact that here I was in my 30s. I I knew the heritage, native Texan, loved the product, had a business background. We just had a lot in common. He he had a, a hundred acres out in Yokum at the time. And so we shared a lot of experience with small town Texas. For him, it was Yokum Shiner. For me, it was Wharton El Campo. And uh, just a lot of common ground. So frankly, you know, we just hit it off and, and became buddies. And in the meantime, he said, sure, why don't you come in and yeah, why don't you get behind the, 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 the baker's table and roll a few and, you know, stretch some cheese and, you know, do this and do that. And so that just kind of started a friendship really more than anything. Uh, and so maybe seven months, seven months of this went by. So some phone calls, some occasional stop by, some hands-on. He didn't give me the give me the recipe, which I, I wouldn't have expected, but I was kind of getting an experience in, in the bakery. And it was February of 07 when this is about seven months into this kind of relationship. So I'm enjoying myself, he's enjoying himself. But I didn't know going in that really he'd been looking for someone to take over. Totally didn't know that at all. Didn't know who owned it, didn't even when I met him, didn't know that. Um, but he'd been looking for years for kind of a protege, someone who fit fit the mold in his mind, someone who could appreciate not just the business aspect, but the right. heritage aspect, who loved it like he loved it for 50 years or 45 years at the time. So we're talking one day in February of 07. And to my surprise, he said, look, I'm going to just be blunt with you. You're the guy I've been looking for. You're the kind of guy I would like to take over. Would you be interested in buying my bakery? And I, I was totally floored. So naturally, I said, "Well, I'm honored that you would even say that to me, Irwin." I said, "Look, let me let me think about this. Let me mull over it." And hung the phone up, and I was just totally flabbergasted. But I mean, within within 24 hours, I just the idea had literally taken hold of me, and mm -hmm. I just thought, "I think I think this is it. I think this is my calling." Wow. What's funny? Go ahead. You ask a question, Chris. No, I just thought, wow, I mean, seven months working together. I love it. He brings it up. And then it took 24 hours. Boom. 
boom, 24 hours. Yeah. Within a day, I was like, I, I think this is it. One of those lightning strike moments because you can't, I mean, you can't even script it. I wasn't even looking for this. That's kind of what, what was it, unique about it. And perhaps, and perhaps frankly, he liked that about me. You know, I wasn't knocking on his door saying you want to sell or how much money you're making. None of that even came up. And uh, I just liked what he did. I liked his background, like his story. He liked my background and my story. And so what's, but what's really interesting is, is, you know, I now tell people that the idea of selling a bakery is one thing. Actually doing the legwork to sell it is a different thing. And so that started a seven-year journey from 07 to 14 when I actually bought it. So, yeah, it was, um, there were certainly time, you know, months during that period when I thought this just isn't going to happen because doing this, again, it's a lot of work, a lot of administration. You got to get lawyers involved and involved and um, accountants. And uh, I just thought, you know, maybe he liked the idea of doing it more than he's actually capable of executing it, which would have been fine too as well. Like my entire livelihood did not depend on this. I was still working as an, an auditor, an accountant. And um, I was still interested. I just thought, okay, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep expressing interest, keep going in, keep conversing with him. But the things ebbed and flowed, you know, there were, there were years when I thought, I don't know. Sure, sure. Well, you know, food is so regional, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I think for some of the listeners who may be in different parts of the country, um, maybe you could take a minute and actually describe uh, what the Czech uh, kolache is, uh, yeah. what type of pastry, a little bit about what it's made. It's probably very similar to what a lot of other people might know by yeah. another name. Well, first, I'm going to start with an anecdote. That, that I think kind of makes the point that, that people will come into one of my bakeries to this day and say, I'll have a sausage jalapeno and cheese kolache. And why don't you throw in a cream cheese Danish? So, <laughs> so that's a nice segue into the story, which is I'm sure you both know the, the kolache is originally, you know, from Czechoslovakia and was only sweet. It was apricot or poppy seed or cottage cheese. So it's a sweet yeast dough fermented over a period of time with a dollop of one of those things I mentioned in, in it. And, um, or a prune was a big one as well. In fact, Erwin used to sell prune and we sold prune for a while after that. But those were kind of the big, the main four, the cottage cheese, the apricot, the prune and the poppy seed. And, um, you know, Texans being Texans over the years after these, uh, after the Czechs came over and introduced the cuisine, started playing with it like, like every culture does and it evolves. And they started throwing some, some you know, authentic uh, medium grind uh, smoked sausage or uh, some jalapeno on there or whatever else they had. And so to this day, people, mostly in Houston, will, most people will consider all that kolaches, right? The, the yes. catch is traditional kolaches are just the ones I mentioned. The sweet filled, uh, typically open face, but they can be closed face as well. Our privacy, right. for example, is enclosed. But the sausage ones... Uh, you know, I've heard called klobasniki. So klobasi is the word for sausage in Czech. So klobasniki is going to be your sausage, jalapeno, and cheese, and whatever. But again, it's, it's funny because I, I'm not, I'm not educating people necessarily. My job is to provide an exceptional experience for my consumer, for my customer, uh, and that of course starts with the second they walk in the door. But you know, culminates in what's the experience like in their mouth? Is it is it hot? Is it fresh? Is it tasty? Um, is it consistent? And so 
if they come in and say, give me your, your awesome jalapeno sausage and shish kolache with your cream cheese Danish, hey, I'm not one to say, look, I'm not going to sell that to you. I'm like, hey, you know, at the register, I might mention that, hey, your cream cheese kolache, do you want that warmed up yeah. or not? But that's kind of where we're at. So, yeah, for all the listeners who don't necessarily know, to your point, Chris, I mean, every culture has some kind of stuffed bun, right? Pierogies or, you know, st- various things around the country, around the world, frankly. And so, yeah, this is this is just one specific version of some kind of stuffed bun, whether it's sweet or savory. And um, I fell in love with it as a, as a child. And many cultures around the world have their own versions of that. Houston fascinates me from a food point of view. The more I've learned about what goes on there, you know, you talk to guys, um, who uh, Italian immigrants coming in and bringing all their northern Italian cuisine in. and then uh, kolaches really weren't on my radar until started doing these podcasts in Houston mm-hmm. of course Tex-Mex and then you had uh, Vietnamese immigrants bring in their banh mi and um, right. and I just you know you know I just want to emphasize that for our listeners um, you may have ideas of what Texas cuisine's all about, and I think there are a few states in the union that have as much diversity. But one of the things that I want to ask from a food point of view, because you got me hungry and thinking about yeah. this, is, is um, you know, Tex-Mex is really Mexican fare that's been kind of regionalized. It's mm-hmm. not really Mexican. It has its own um, right. thing. Um, has Is there something about... Texas and tech, you said jalapenos. Is there has has kolaches become Texified at, from what it might have been uh, maybe in 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 Prague 150 years ago? Yeah, yeah. Well, so I, I would say kind of the first iteration of that is what I alluded to earlier. You know, 50, 60 years ago, when some person said, "I love this dough. I like I like apricot, but I like sausage more. Let's just throw that sausage link that I smoked last night in that dough." <laughs> That was kind of the first iteration of that. But the, the the latest iteration in the past, I don't know, let's just pick a time frame, 10, 10, 20 years is, you know, we have a boudin kolache. You mentioned Cajun. So there, there are many Viet Cajun places. There's now, you know, uh, you know, boudin kolaches are pretty common. So we have our own. We, we partner with a great local place in, in spring. And, um, you know, we also partner with other local purveyors. So we've done, I mean, we did a barbacoa. Uh, Kalachi a few months ago. We partnered with a great barbecue joint down the road, Pinkerton's. Uh, so we have a brisket egg cheddar. There we Kalachi. go. Need a brisket and, uh, Yeah. You know, so <laughs> ultimately what I would say is uh, even on the Sweden, oh, in fact, we just partnered with Brennan's, uh, which, you know, as you know, a new one on the transplant. They've got the best praline you can get your hands on. Well, we partnered with them to do a praline kolache, wow. uh, praline to cream kolache. Ooh. Which was awesome. I bet that tastes good. It was delicious. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, so we we just the way I see it is, you know, as you mentioned, you know, Texified. I mean, ultimately, we we certainly are always trying to pay, you know, homage to and kind of nod to the origins because you know, we're not also selling, for example, you know, pizza and, and burgers. Which I like pizza. I'm just saying we're trying to keep it. Um, somewhat associated with the origins because those are those things are important to us, but at the same time, keep it fresh and relevant for the six million people that are here. So, but that means, yeah, we're doing some great boudin, it's a great Cajun kolache or te- or Mexican kolache or brisket or whatever. You know, we 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 enjoy keeping it fresh and 
I know a few years ago we did, oh, we're, we're doing a, a king cake kolache, which is just a, a fun Mardi Gras take. So, you know, it's a little, it's a little handheld king cake uh, minus the baby because, you you know, uh, liability, right? But, you know, right. we, we decorate it and it's just, it's great. It's like a miniature handheld king cake. And so that's a lot of fun. We, we just enjoy, you know, going through some of these evolutions while at the same time we still offer uh, apricot and poppy seed. We offer prune and cottage cheese by special order. Um, we got people who come in and say, look, I remember when Erwin used to offer yours, your cinnamon rolls with raisins and nuts. Can we do that? Sure. Give me a few days and we'll do a raisin nut cinnamon roll for you because you know, that's special to them. In fact, we'll get generations come in. You know, we're, the brand is now 52 years old and 53 actually as of this year. So they'll come in and say, I came in as a child. They're, they're 40 now. And this was part of their childhood. And they're like, well, but when I was here, you know, we used to get da da da. So w- within reason, we'll try to accommodate and um, really keep those memories alive. And in fact, I would say, you know, I've been pondering recently this idea of the Texas cuisine. And I was speaking to a, a purveyor that does fajitas and this great Tex-Mex. And we, we joked and said, really, we're selling the same thing. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, we're, we're selling Texas. You know, we're selling this nostalgia. We're selling memories. We're selling convivial, you know, Sundays with your grandparents uh, around the, the kitchen table, whether it's Sunday mornings in my case, Sunday evenings in his case. And so, you know, I, for me, it's it's really just, I wanted to bring a slice of my own childhood from rural Texas and then what they call the check belt um, to, to the heart of Houston. And not that it was totally not here already. It, there were some semblances of it, but not the way I'm doing it now. And so I just think, well, yeah, we're, we're selling Texas. And you might say, well, you know, certainly the business model has done well. But for me, it's always personal because for me, it's just that was my childhood. And it's why I also like frequenting other places that you can tell it's, it could be a boudin. It could be Tex-Mex. It could be Viet Cajun. I mean, you name it. I just love people who are really bringing their heart and soul into that into that region. Yeah. You know, Barry, I think that's a really interesting point, and I hope that it kind of resonates with the listeners. I think whatever part of the country you're in, sometimes restaurants do look too much at the process, too much at the product. The product, as Randy's reminding me, is really just the vehicle for what's being delivered. And you're right, I guess whether it's a family dinner or a family morning pastry, family dessert, um, special brewed family, you know, drink that you're used to, uh, then if you can find restaurants that deliver that, then you're looking at that vehicle to re- give you a memory. That's exactly right. family. I, I, I think that's a really good point worth underlining. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to imagine without, you know, you're going to explain to me what, what the concept is like. I'm imagining um, something that is mostly counter service and takeout. I'm imagining 50 year old equipment in the back that where you process 500 pounds of dough one time and roll it out. Um, but is this a, how many units do you have? Is there sit down? Do I, you know, there tables where I would come in and eat my kolaches or is it mostly over the counter? Uh, tell me how many, how many, what's explain the concept and how many units. Yeah. So, so the one I purchased, which was the original, so 1970, um, start, well, it, it's a Richmond Westland and Greenway Plaza in Houston. And so that one is kind of one of the descriptions you described, which was, you know, older, some of the equipment is kind of, um, 
heritage that I inherited from him. And so, you know, it's, believe it or not, we don't even have a 60 quart floor mixer. It's like a 24 quart stand and we're just cranking out batches of dough constantly because it's so small. The unit is 750 square feet, uh, 750, and it's just tiny. But but to your point, I mean, a few seats at the bar, a couple of seats outside, um, but that's that's kind of what you would imagine uh, a 53-year-old, you know, mm-hmm. place being like. Now, since then, we opened a, a unit in the Heights. That opened in December of 18, a little bigger, drive-through, full espresso bar, a little more modern, but we partnered with a great um, design firm here in Houston who, who again, wanted to marry the heritage with, with the evolution because we're not, like, we're not country kits. You know, we're not like, red checkered tablecloths not not that i'm against that that was my whole bringing too but you know we wanted we wanted a mod, modernizing um look and feel while still keeping a lot of the the uh again the memories and the heritage but we wanted it neat and clean and attractive and so same concept uh very little insights in fact heights has no inside seating at the moment because it, we've become so busy and then outside there's patio seating but there's a drive-through uh, and we were franchising now which which just started you know, recently we we decided that it was time for us to get the brand out there more than just uh, those two units. So I actually I sold the Heights location recently to a really outstanding longtime employee. So uh, he and his fiance are doing a stand up job owning and operating it. So that started in September of 22, and then we opened our second franchise in Kingwood in November of 22. So uh, to recap, we got the original. Richmond and Westland, that's my store, the corporate store, and two franchises. We're opening two more new ones this year, one in Pearland this summer, and later in the summer uh, in North Dallas, Salina, to be precise, north of Frisco. So uh, all grab and go, to your point, Barry. You know, Mm -hmm. we're not, we certainly will have some seating. Some locations will be very, you know, inside seat light. Some might have a few more, but, but but the idea is that, look, it should be quick and, and, and convenient for you. Uh, most of these things are, are enjoyed either on the go or back at home, as we said, Saturday morning, Sunday morning, or after a baseball game or after church or whatever. Mm-hmm. But for those people who want to linger, yeah, go, go grab, grab a patio spot in the spring and um, go chat and, and enjoy, you know, people watching. So we, we try to, you know, offer those amenities as well. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of our, our concept in a nutshell. Hopefully I, I gave you, Barry, what you needed yeah. to know. Yeah. Let's talk about production. And, and again, I'm making assumptions and, and you'll correct me, but yeah. uh, my, my little understanding about those type of food products here in North Carolina, they call them ham pies. You got empanadas, mm-hmm. getting the dough right, take some skill and mm-hmm. experience. They're not something you mass produce. They're done by hand. So it requires people who can produce a lot of these by hand. And a lot of these places are open at three, four in the morning because they got to get these things ready to go fresh. So tell me if I'm I'm getting that right in terms of your concept. And also that requires some special labor in my in my opinion. What uh am I close to reality here? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so I'll just I'll just take you to kind of take you through a 24-hour period of our dough process so you get an mm-hmm. understanding of. But yeah, very similar. So all of our they're all hand produced. So each location makes the dough from scratch. We're not making it a commissary and shipping it out. And so uh, using real real normal ingredients that we could all imagine. So sugar, yeast, flour, butter, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on any given day, uh, the the work crew, some of who've been with me, frankly, since Irwin's day. So I've got several employees who were his employees. So they've been around for you know, 10 plus years, they just really, really 
take pride and care in what they do. And, and um, so we'll make the batch of dough fresh. For example, let's take today. Uh, come in probably five, six in the morning. This is not the baker. The baker comes in earlier, but we'll get to the baker tomorrow morning, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, this morning, the kitchen crew comes in, the prep staff, they'll crank up the batch of dough and they'll start breaking it down into sub batches and then further into little pieces using a dough divider. And so those pieces then become your raw materials for everything we serve. So our sweet ones, the the, the egg ones, the savory, et cetera, including our cinnamon rolls. So as you, as you clarify, the cinnamon rolls aren't, they don't go through the second subdividing. So we'll, we'll subdivide a batch and then of course roll those out and put our cinnamon paste in. But uh, for the kolaches, yeah, those little pieces become the, um, the starting point. They then will fill those and we'll bag them, put them in the fridge overnight. So it does two things. One is it, the dough, because it's a yeast dough, Barry, you mentioned hard to work with. I mean, yeast doughs are, not- are notoriously difficult to work with because it, you know, yeast doesn't really care what you want out of it. I mean, it's going to respond differently to humidity levels and, and temperatures in the kitchen and, and changes in temperature. And, you know, even things like how hot are your hands and um, the table that you're on. So, uh, you know, it, it can be an unwieldy process, but you start putting some, some uh, par- parameters in place to try to corral, corral the changes that you can experience. So uh, w- by putting it, putting it in the fridge overnight, it lets the, uh, the dough kind of mature some mm-hmm. and the yeast can start slowly, but surely taking its action. And so we not talk to some guys who own some really artisan pizza joints. And they say, Oh, we don't ever use dough that's younger than 24 hours. Cause it, it's just a difference. The, the, the mm-hmm. chew is different. The texture is a little different. I just like to say the, again, maturity is the word I use. It becomes a little more, more mature. That being said, the second reason we do it is because, you know, it also builds in some, some safeguards. If, if you're making it all the morning of number one, you, you lose the maturity, but number two is you, you could, you could risk getting behind. And so that way, you know, your production is totally done the day before. So your baker gets in the next day at, you know, three o'clock in the morning, pulls those racks out of the fridge, unbags them. So most of your, most of your stuff is starting to come to room temperature over a few hour period, but your first wave of items is going into our proof box. And so, you know, low temp, uh, let's say hundred degrees, high humidity, um, those are going in and it really activates the yeast. And those are the items that, that are going to in the display case at 6 a.m. or 6.30, depending on opening time. And so that and that process is just repeated throughout the morning. So in the, the second wave, that's not already proved from, you know, being in the bag at room temperature. They're going to the proof box as soon as the first wave's out. And you're just doing that over and over again until your rush dies down, all the products out. Um, and then all the while, the prep staff the next day is producing for the next day. So it's just it's. Um, it's kind of a wallet oil machine at this point, but but to your point, it's all handmade by people who have taken great care and concern with um, producing a high quality product. And you know, we're also we also have an eye for things that come out ugly because the fact is, I don't care how good you are, sometimes they explode on you or the filling overflows, and we're like, okay, get get that out. And we have a, an area in the back, and we we all enjoy those privately, you know, yeah. um, in the kitchen or you know, going home. Uh, taste taste is good. We want we want our customers to have attractive product too, and so we uh, you know we take pride in the process. So to, to us, to me, to me, and to us, I think the key is giving the product time to both mature and to rise. The more you let it rise, uh, it's going to be soft and supple and pillowy, and it's a very it's very easy to produce a quick um, dense dough. Uh, there are occasions for that, right? Other kinds of yeah. cuisines mm-hmm. or. We're not going for that personally. I, I didn't grow up eating a quick, dense, chewy dough. I want it to be fluffy and soft and 
there's just no substitute for time. And, you know, people have tried and we just, we just build that time in. And um, when you build the time in, customers will time and time again, no pun intended, uh, come in and say, we just, we love how soft your dough is. That's what we're always going for, uh, particularly on the sweet ones. It's, it really comes to the forefront of those. Mm-hmm. Good to know that, that not only does doing that at that day in advance make the better quality product that you want, because of course that's first and foremost, but I like the other comment you made. It's also the operational thing to do. It's a smarter use of time and, and motion and planning yeah. because being that one day ahead helps maintain best use of time and planning for volume. If we're doing yeah. that much preparation on the That's same right. day of selling, it's a big gamble. So it's kind of nice when right. those two marry. That's right. uh, I'm doing it better yeah. and also be, being able to do it smarter because not every product preparation is that way. That's true. That's true. Yeah, it's a good point. And given all that prep, I mean, um, is your understanding of, of your volume in terms of, you know, how much you need to prep, is that just, is it steady enough where it's fairly, you know, uh, you know, kind of an old school approach to determining how many units you'll need on a given day? Or uh, have you gotten a little bit more sophisticated in terms of how you calculate that based on times of the year and all that thing? Because you know, it's like, you know, I, I, in some ways I compare it to a little bit to barbecue. You, you've mm-hmm. got to have so much ready to go mm-hmm. that day. Um, yeah. And you don't want people to come in and not get what they want. So can you yeah. talk about your, talk about your, your production planning? It was so interesting. I was having a conversation with a barbecue joint owner about a year ago and we were commiserating because we said, we're, we're some of the only places around that have to decide 48 hours in advance what you're going to make for the public. Who, yeah, by yeah. the way, by the way, like herding cats. I mean, you, you can guess, you can have an educated guess, but you don't really know if you're a burger joint and you make the burgers that are ordered, right? right. Nothing, there are no complexities there either. But but again, 48 hours, it's very difficult. So to your point, Barry, I mean, in the early days, certainly it was much less sophisticated and more just like, I don't know, what's our gut say? Well, then, sure. you, then you get kind of get sucker punched enough and realize, okay, let's start incorporating some real data analytics here. And so mm-hmm. we basically have a, so what we call it the bake sheet. So it's kind of like the pan up. We just, we list out all of our items, the different waves, the totals, and those totals then feed into how many batches of dough we need to make. So the kitchen will know when they walk in, okay, we're looking at roughly five batches today. Okay, the next day we're looking at roughly six batches, depending on how much you're asking them to produce. And so um, in terms of quantities, yeah, we'll, we'll typically... And this is not so hard and fast, but roughly a three-week rolling average. Um, I would say that's important. Almost more important are the larger cycles that are happening. So mostly school-related, holiday-related, seasonality-related. But also, we'll also look at weather. You know, if some major weather events are happening, you know, we'll we'll wait. We'll we'll artificially delay producing that, that bake sheet for an extra six to 12 hours, just to, to build a little extra time to see, well, is this storm going to hit us or not? Or, you know, whatever, whatever you know, parades, even things like that, right? Local local traffic is 610 shut down this weekend or not. It's 59, you know, how's 59 doing? So we, we try to bring all those in. It can be complicated, but actually the, the biggest driver are just these larger um, cyclical patterns that we've noticed. Um, you know, so for example, January is always slow, like it is for most places. February through May is pretty strong, pretty similar. March can see a small dip, but but in general, that's a block for us. You know, the 
February through late May, summer, certainly see another small dip. Um, but, it, but beyond kind of the major, kind of the macro cycles, we are looking at, okay, what were the previous three weeks like? Why do we keep having four trays of XYZ left over? Well, okay, we incorporate that micro data into that next week and just see how it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, you, you said data analytics. I mean, that's, um, you, you know, I guess at some point you, you can start feeding that information into a predictive analytics model and mm-hmm. and based on your history, know that, hey, on third week, third Wednesday of July, this is kind of how many of these things we sell. Mm-hmm. Um, very interesting. And I, I got to believe that really helps your cost control quite a bit. Yeah. Because, yeah. You know, yeah, the challenge, and I would say, I mean, I would say in this way, maybe we're a little different than barbecue. Because I know some barbecue joints will say open at 11 until we sold out, right? Like mm-hmm. that's that's their thing. Like we're going to run out of brisket at some point. Shame on you if you didn't get there early enough to get some. You know, we we always would like to have certain best sellers available all the way to closing, fully knowing those are going to be, you know, we, we typically will donate to a local you know, food pantry or something else like that. So they're never wasted per se, but of course you would like to sell them to our, mm-hmm. our, our, our lovely customers as well. Um, so for us at the tightrope, you know, you have, it's happened before where we sold out early and we've had some very irate customers appropriately. So I would be too. We never want to sell out, you know, half an hour in advance. Then we'll try to, you know, give away free coffee or something, give our apologies, but that's a, that's a poor substitute for, I wanted a sausage, egg, and cheese, and now you don't have it. Right. But, but the flip side of that is you've got mountains of leftovers, right? To yeah. your point about cost control, that's also not good for me to anybody. No, that's that's not good. And at so all. when the customer walks in and it's half an hour of closing time, and they're like, "Wow, I could literally choose from anything," they're happy. But I'm like, "Ah, I wish you, I wish you had a few a few less options to choose from." Um, but yeah, we're always trying to walk that line. Ten percent is a nice number when they can have, come in and say, "You know what? You got a couple sweets." Couple savories, one That's one good. one spicy. Hey, I'm happy because it's you know we do a buy one get one free the last hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, so that that's what we go for. Sometimes we hit it, sometimes we don't. You know, I'd like to take a step back and look at the market segment that you're in. Get your comment on where that's going because I find it interesting that counter service, what you might call impulse buy, um, specialty bakery. Um, has had tremendous success in sort of the expansion of what people might consider the ordinary. Uh, You know, a decade ago, we saw that was sort of the reinvention of uh, cupcakes Mm -hmm. and Crave and Sprinkles franchised, you know, regionally through um, almost throughout the nation going crazy. Uh, Interesting upgrades to cookies, Mm -hmm. crumble and other brands. Look how we've reinvented the donuts now. Velvet taco from Oregon, hot selling, um, you know, units expansion. So with this kind of thing, with cookies and donuts and other sweets and savory items, is that expanding the market segment? Does that help call attention to your uh, concept for growth? Or do you find that competitive? And does it take away from the available market for you? Yeah, I, I, my my response to that would be no. I definitely don't see that as directly competitive. In fact, it's I see it all. It's all beneficial to all the players because the fact is, it's it's all buzz and it generates interest among all the consumers. And so, to your point, I mean, yeah, there was a time twenty years ago when breakfast taco was a breakfast taco, right? And you know, I, I know growing up, we get them from Whataburger down the road, and and um, you know. And so all I can say is any, any 
any brand that is trying to innovate and elevate a, a known product, it seems to me is automatically a companion on the journey that we're also trying to do. So, you know, we're not, they're not trying to reinvent the taco per se, but they've got some unique, interesting takes on it. There was, you know, Velvet, you mentioned it, Torchies is also another one. Um, and so, I, so my second comment to that would be, particularly in a city of Houston size, you know, it's, it's so gigantic that, I mean, it would take such a specific pointed um, situation to truly call it uh, competitive and therefore detrimental maybe, right? Or, hey, that they're going to take 20% of my revenue. I mean, there's just so much business, so much demand, so many consumers, um, so much appreciation, frankly. I mean, Barry, you alluded to this earlier. The, the thing is, all those things you described, the, the fusions and the influx, it just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have lasted if you didn't also have appreciation. And so just a, a very quick 30 second aside, in my early, early days in 2014, I recall meeting uh, Chef Chris Shepard at the farmer's market. Didn't He didn't know me, of course. I knew who he was. I approached him um, uh, a little timidly because he was kind of a, you know bigger, bigger than life, so to speak. But he gave him my business card. I said, here's what I'm doing. I just bought this bakery. He said, I love kolaches. He comes down that day. We have a half an hour conversation. And one of the things he said to me, which I never forget, he said, look, my experience in Houston is that it, it's truly um, communal. I mean, it, it's not fake, right? People in the business here, both the consumers and the rest, restaurateurs, they're genuine and people really care about each other. And I think that's why he's had success with Southern Smoke and other things like that, because it's not, it's not an appearance. It's really just how we are. So I'll go back to you, Chris, and say, you know, unless it was somebody across the street who opened up their own concept, who maybe was trying to copy something I was doing, okay, that's worth noting. But otherwise, I'd say anybody trying to do anything authentically, uh, not just in breakfast market, but even in the kolache market, there, there, are, there are mom and pop kolache places that I genuinely love and appreciate in Houston, also out of Houston, because because I see them as just, again, companions on the journey. I'm like, they're trying to do what I'm trying to do and therefore uh, move the public along with us and say, hey, guys, this is special to me. Um, I'd like it to be special for you, too. Would you come give us a try? You know, that's how I feel about it. That's an interesting concept, you know, and it's, it's just somewhat philosophical, but you you, you kind of hit a chord with me in that, you know, a lot of times you talk about markets and the restaurant business and it's there are people who say, you know, it's, they all look at it as dog eat dog. We're all fighting for, you know, our limited piece of the pie. And I remember going to Anheuser-Busch years and years ago and they said, you know, we're promoting beer. Yeah. If more if people are drinking more beer we're going to make more money and so what i'm hearing from you is you're kind of you say in a in a in a functional restaurant market it the rising tide lifts all ships if i'm hearing yeah. you that was the quote that was the quote that i couldn't quite get right in my mind so thank right. you for nailing it that's exactly right that that again you're moving the marker along for everyone and if someone's out there doing a good job generating buzz you know chris you mentioned you know innovating in their own respective area this is good for everybody because and I'll and I'll go and this is a very small piece, but I always come back and say, look, I'm I'm more customer than I am purveyor, and I'm purveyor, you know, through and through. But I also am out there eating and experiencing and meeting people, and, I, and I'm like, I also want people out there doing the things that they're doing, and so I it, it's also it helps me synergistic, really. So yeah, I I, I concur with both of you on that. Mm -hmm. So, so your uh, growth strategy, Chris had uh, alluded to 
um, things such as franchising and so forth. What what is your strategy? What's your philosophy? Um, do you have uh, you know? Do you have something? Are you planned on graph paper in terms of where you're going, or is it more organic? Uh, uh, what's your approach? Yeah, I would for sure more organic. And you know, mm-hmm. I, I worked. I've worked with some consultants to kind of get me to this point to to get the legal entities created and the marketing and the website and everything. And certainly, I've I've worked with people who perhaps would have suggested a more graph paper approach. But mm-hmm. you know, my wife and I just when we're in the privacy of our home, we know we're about and we're we're just not in it for the numbers. And so, if you said, "Look, what if you have 10, 10 units total in five years?" or even eight, whatever, pick a number. Um, I'd say, you know, the number's not important. If, if, if we have five in five years, but those five are just like really awesome and those and those operators are happy and the and the customers are happy in those respective neighborhoods in the Kingwood or North Dallas, whatever, then I'm happy. So I'm, I'm not, that being said though, I'm certainly not anti-growth. I would say, you know, the biggest thing for us is, you know, who are we partnering with? I was reading this article by, uh, Oh, Franchise Times, and they interviewed the owners of uh, Nothing Bunt Cakes. And the, the owner said, look, we see this as a marriage. I mean, we're not, it's not just random people that you're partnering with. Like it's literally you're getting married to them in business. And um, I like the concept because to me, I see it the same. And so I would just say for us, we will expand as much and as quickly as we can, all dependent on that one factor of where we find these partners that we find share our values and our culture, and we want to get married to, you know, you, you really, you got to be discerning if you're getting married. Well, so that's I, I, I think, I think you're right. I think some people mistake franchise growth by just sort of responding to people who are interested. Uh, right. They can cut the check. They can open up a new market for you. You get excited. You have a franchise and um it would be good if more people looked at it as you are, where you're really selecting the right operating partner. Truly, truly. And uh, it's, it's like growing a family. You know, it's yeah. you're a family member. These people are tied to you by legal agreement yeah. for a long period of time. Right. So it isn't just let's go make some money selling our favorite kolache. It's yeah. God, are we compatible? Are we going to like each other for the next decade? Well, and I, I'll kind of a rider to that, which is a quickly would be that, you know, we didn't, Lucy and I didn't have success at Richmond or even at Heights by running it in a very, um, how should we say, you know, soulless way or purely numerical way. Like it was, uh, I mean, blood, sweat and tears. It was our presence in there every day. It was, it was smiles. It was doing charity events and not, and again, not, not, um, kicking and screaming because we wanted to, that, that was our passion. And, um, ultimately it'd be a great, I mean, to me, it'd be very sad to find out that my brand is in some market, but is also, but is not, did not bring the soul along, right? It's just a shell. And now it's just cranked up. And the product may still taste fine. In fact, it should taste fine. But it's, as we said earlier, it's not, we're not just selling a pastry. Chris, I liked what you said. You said it's a vehicle to something more. And so we need that something more in Pearland and Kingwood and Dallas and wherever we expand to. And you got to find people who really get that and jive with that. Because the fact is, Kind of like the rising of the dough. Like there's no way around the time. There's no way around, um, you know, having this soulful approach, which involves your presence, your attention, your concern, your regard. There's no way around it. You can't like put a system in place to say, hey, act like me, act like I care without me caring. Well, 
we haven't figured that out yet. So we need people who really want to care in person, right? And we've heard just before, Chris, haven't we? And, and you know what? It, it comes up again and again and again. I have conversations with people, operators, or um, they say, oh, you know, it's all systems. It's all procedures. That's how you get all consistent. And, and, and frankly, you, you can't run a consistent place without good systems. But, you know, at, at the at the uh, um, risk of, 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 a, of a pun here, it's, it seems the culture is really the thing that makes the dough rise. Yeah. No, well, that's... <laughs> I couldn't have said it better. I, I my, my final comment would be I'm a long yes. time, I'm a long time uh, you know, reader of restaurant, the, the restaurant magazine, uh, restaurantowner.com, et cetera. And so uh, you know, you can't say enough about systems. You certainly can't, right? Because because you can have a great culture and horrible systems or no systems they can go down. But it's kind of like the idea of you know, chief among equals. I mean, they're all they're all big players, but ultimately the chief among the equals is culture for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. And that that's really if you want to talk about differentiators, that's the differentiator. If you don't have an authentic culture with real human beings who yeah. bring soul and their passion, you know, you may survive, but you're not going to thrive. And that's what we want to do. We want to thrive and for the sake of the communities and for the sake of our partners. We want to see them as happy in 10 years as I was five years ago. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I've learned the reason for this. I think the reason we see successful people that are growing Uh, talk more about people and culture. It isn't that they're downplaying, you know, financial management and product systems and, you know, uh, you know, prep lists and everything that you need to have a consistent operation. It's just they're smart enough to know that it starts with people. People are the ones that are going to supervise the procedures. People are the ones that are implementing the system. That's that's right. That's exactly right. right And don't have a soul for the business, then the checkboard, the you know, that uh, clipboard hanging on the wall is just not going to get followed. Right. Or, or these days, the, the, the iPad, right, with the checklist on it, right? That's that's cool. It's dinging maybe, and you got to take pictures with it, and that's all great. But but to your point, Chris, you've got to have really good people managed by really good people who are executing these day in and day out um, and have a sense of buy-in and worth uh, in, in that process. How involved are you in the day-to-day? You've got, you know, you've got more than one unit. Um and the vibe that you're giving an office, a guy who is tasting, checking up on his people, saying hi in there all the time. You know, we used to talk all, you know, a lot early in the magazine, um, working on the business, not in the business, because you want to have the step back, do the marketing, you know, you want to take the higher 40,000 foot view of your business. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you know, what I've learned from Chris and others who are experts is that, you know, you can't have absentee ownership. You need yeah. to be there tasting. You need to be talking to your guests. You need to be looking under the tables. Um, how are you managing it um, as a multi-unit operator um, without, without giving up your personal life? Well, yeah, it's a great question. So a mentor of mine used to say, uh, delegate, don't abdicate, right? So mm-hmm. delegate, but stay involved, right? So Chris, back to your point about people. So having some really pe- great people that you trust, um, but but you can't just check out. And, you know, you, you've got to be checking in rec- uh, frequently, getting in there, checking on the tables, like you said, Barry. Um, you know, so I, I currently, since September, have just the one store that I'm responsible for. So certainly the two franchises, Heights and Kingwood, you know, I've got great people both running it and great people who work for me doing the check-ins, right? Asking questions, how can we support you? What's going on? How are you doing with marketing? How are you doing with reviews? How are you doing with consistency? Do you need something? So 
Um, but they're they're doing great. So for my own my own store, one of the the store managers is one of the few who remained from Irwin's day. So talk about history and care. I mean, she's been there for ever. And so back when I was just the random guy coming into the kitchen to like, you know, roll a kolache, she was there as a worker. So I would say her presence is my presence. Uh, I have a right-hand person who is awesome. And he he really has elevated my, you know, brand, my brand as well. And so I'd say also like, like, with, like with her, his presence is my presence. And so uh, having the right people in the right places, but at the same time, not abdicating, not saying, okay, I, I really trust you both a lot. You're both great. They may be great, but they also want and need me, right? Uh, coming in and checking in and how can I support you guys? Or coming in and just saying, frankly saying, hey, I don't I don't love how our display case looks today, right? Maybe there's been some drift. It's a term I use a lot. Like it's not it's not a hard right angle, right? Right turn, but, but drift happens, right? You walk in, you're like, hey, this is not what we discussed you know, a month ago or two months ago, what can I do to help to make sure that next time X, Y, Z is happening? And so, yeah, people, check-ins, delegating, um, that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. Correct. You know, Barry, I just want to underline a couple of key points because I'm sure you recognize them too. The words Randy's using are right out of the text for proper leadership. We talk about leadership, making managers better managers, and leadership doesn't just tell and expect but the leadership is going in, you know, checking and then asking, you know, what can I do to help you do this better? And I heard you say that and showing support, you know, for their people. And um, I just kind of want listeners to make a note of that, that um, it, it is it's important. Good leaders enjoy directing people. Good managers enjoy being led because they know that that good leader is going to come in and is going to ask and point out and then support and assist. They don't just tell. Uh, um, and um, and then expect. Yeah, very good points. Very illustrative of that concept. Mm -hmm. Randy, this has been really great. I mean, um, I, I love your enthusiasm. I love your passion Thank for you. what you're doing um, and, and the education you provided um, our listeners today. Thank you for that. Well, I mean, likewise, both of you, just it's been a long time coming and Chris, has, you know, I've known you for many years and Barry, it's great to meet you. And I'm just, I'm really honored to have the time and as you can hear in my voice, and I apologize for the moments when I've sped up, I'm just excited. <laughs> I'm excited about our brand. I'm excited about what we do. Um, and so thank you both for the opportunity. I love it. Oh, you're welcome. We loved having you. This is fantastic. I hope everybody will profit from all of the uh, wisdom that you've shared. And we wish you continued success. So everybody remember that. It can be a kolach. It can be a kolache. It's just important to go get them. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Thank you all, and we hope to catch up really quick on another Corner Booth. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us on the Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.